Hi, everyone. Welcome to the A6 and Z podcast. Today, we have one of our special guest-hosted episodes as part of a new series where we share select A6 and Z partner appearances elsewhere here. This one is with A6 and Z co-founder Mark Andreessen. The episode is cross-posted from the new show, Starting Greatness, hosted by Mike Maples Jr. In the show that follows, Mark shares some rare behind-the-scenes details on his journey to product market fit from zero to one, from the University of Illinois and Mosaic to Netscape. So it was a strange time. There's an old William Gibson quote, the author of Neuromancer, all the great science fiction books. He says, the future is already here. It's just not evenly distributed. And so this was a a great example of that. That's Mark Andreessen, who's now a famous venture capitalist at Andreessen Horowitz. At age 22, he founded Netscape, the company that kicked off the internet age. How did Netscape even happen? And what was it like when it was about to blow up? This is Mike Maples Jr. of Floodgate, and it's Go Time with Mark Andreessen. Welcome to Starting Greatness, a podcast dedicated to ambitious founders who want to go from nothing to awesome super fast. When you're a startup founder, you have to channel your inner James Bond, your MacGyver, your Wonder Woman. I'm going to help you win by curating the lessons of the super performers, but before they were successful. So without further ado, ignition sequence start. Let's get started. I decided to do some things a little differently with this interview because I wanted to capture things about Mark's startup journey that most have likely not heard. I wanted to get a level deeper about how Netscape and the early web grew out of the Mosaic project. But I also wanted to help people see a side of Mark that few people see in public. While you might see him share books he likes on Twitter, it's hard to connect this to what it's like to spend time with him. He's an incredibly avid reader in diverse areas like technology, science, art, literature, science fiction, history, politics, economics, psychology, and he can synthesize ideas and connect the dots in a blink of an eye. And that curiosity combined with his technical depth is definitely a superpower. If you've wondered about the origin stories of the web, what it was like to be in the middle of it, Mark goes into a depth that I haven't seen before. And he also reveals the three things he wishes Netscape had done differently that would have made the internet better today. I'm excited about how the conversation went and hope you enjoy it too. Let's talk to him. Mark Andreessen, welcome to the podcast. Hey, it's great to be here. So, Mark, you've been involved with some pretty big wins. So why don't we just start out by asking you, what's your advice to people who want to build something great? So the, the first piece of advice is don't do it. <laughs> it's um, impossible. <laughs> it's impossible. So uh, it's so hard. Sean Parker has the best line on starting companies. Um, starting a company is like chewing glass. Eventually, you start to like the taste of your own blood. <laughs> and so don't do it. Um, and the reason that's the first piece of advice is because, number one, if you can be talked out of it, you definitely shouldn't do it. So if you listen to advice, number one, you definitely shouldn't do it. Yeah. If you ignore advice, number one, you might have the personality type to be to, to be a founder. So that, that's the that's the first gut check. And then you see this a lot, I'm sure, is there are a lot of people who would like to start a company. The goal is to start a company, and then they kind uh-huh. of try to back into an idea. 
Yep. We call this sort of synthetic. These are, we call these sort of synthetic startups. Yep. It's like, I want to start a company and I am not going to yeah. apply myself. M- market white space companies. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Boy, wouldn't it be great if X, right? Yeah. Where X is just something I, you know, read in a magazine that day or, you know, just a, you know, you know, by, by the way, there have been some, some successful synthetic startups. Like some, some have worked. The more common thing is an actual honest to God, organic idea that is actually something that you are like deeply immersed in. Yeah. Right. The odds that it's going to be like a flash of inspiration are very low, but like if it's a field that you've been working in for five or 10 years and you know it inside out and it's just like obvious to you that it should work a different way you know then maybe you've got something yeah. but you yeah. got to like really deeply like you, you number one you have to deeply believe because you have to really be irrationally committed to it because it is so hard but the other thing is like you have to actually validate your beliefs like it has to yeah. actually like you have to be right and gates and jobs are the same way in pcs you're obsessed with a field for its own sake and you start noticing things yeah. Because you're down the rabbit hole. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. And it's very hands-on. And, and, you know, both the Microsoft and Apple founding stories, both companies started very small and very humble because they were literally working. Like, in, you know, Apple, they were building their first computers by hand. Yeah. You know, there was no abstraction to it. Right. There was no master plan. There was no theory. It was, can we build a hundred computers made out of wooden boxes yeah. and sell them at the trade fair? And it built out of that. But they, right to your point, like they were living in that world. I would love to just know about just how you got to building Mosaic. How did you get involved with the internet in the first place? So it was a strange time. There's an old William Gibson quote, the author of Neuromancer, all the great science fiction books. He says, the, the future's already here. It's just not evenly distributed. And so this was a, a great example of that. And so what I sort of semi-realized when I chose to go to Illinois, part of it was because they, they, they had a top flight engineering program, computer science program. But in particular, they had they, they were picked in the mid-80s to be one of four federally funded centers for supercomputing at the mm-hmm. time. And this was a specific government program that basically had two parts. One was to basically buy these, you know, $25 million supercomputers from companies at the time like Cray and Thinking Machines and basically put them in, you know, basically four locations in the U.S. And then, and then uh, you know, for scientists to be able to use for drug design and studying black holes and doing all kinds of stuff. A uh, $25 million computer, you know, occupied a full room. And in fact, in those days, what they would do is they actually build an entire building for the computer. And then they would actually, they, they'd build the shell of the building, they'd build the walls, they'd leave the ceiling open, then they'd lower the computer down through the ceiling <laughs> up but using a crane <laughs> yep. to lower it into place, and then they'd finish the building. So this was a big deal at the time. These things were super expensive, and so they only put them in four locations, and they wanted other scientists and researchers all over the country to be able to use them. And so the part two of the program was this program called NSFNet, mm-hmm. so it's National Science Foundation Network, which was the funding group that, that, that paid for this whole thing. So those programs were authorized in the mid-'80s, um, and then I got to Illinois in 89, and so they basically had been rolled out at that point. And so um, Illinois in, in those days, it was like a fully broadband-wired Internet-native campus. Wow. And it was one of exactly four of those. But just because you have to have the Internet doesn't mean that it's actually all that useful, useful for anything, yeah. right? That there's – and, you know, like if you're a scientist, like how exactly are you communicating with every, you know, with your colleagues on different campuses? How exactly are you, you know, storing and analyzing your research? How exactly are you going to share your research with the world? That stuff was all yet to be built. Um, and so the purpose of this group was to build, you know, basically to build the early systems that, that would let people collaborate. So then uh, you're building these early systems. Where, where does the idea for the Mosaic browser come from? So funny story there. So so basically, so the project I ended, I, I got hired into work on was a project called Collage, um, which basically was sort of, it, sort of, I don't know, maybe Zoom's the current comp or something, um, or you know, Skype. So sort of, but uh, sort of general purpose, real-time conferencing, uh-huh. right? So video, you know, video, video, you know, audio and video, but also like what, you know, it's all the standard compliment, whiteboard sharing, you know, document and collaborative document editing, Google Docs kind of thing. You know, this is like what, in 1991, 1992, right? So they kind of had, had all those ideas back then. It's, it's one of those funny things, like it's, it's when people talk about this, but like the role of timing in this stuff is always so interesting because like that stuff's all happening now. Yeah. Right. Like Zoom goes public now. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's like 
30 years later, right? So, so you know, the lag on these things can, 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 can be quite something. Okay, so you're trying to help these ideas take some early baby steps. How did you think about what to work on? Well, there were a few things. So there were a few things. And so then you basically say, okay, real time isn't going to work. It was sort of internet variations on the bulletin board systems of the PC hobbyists in the, in the mid 80s, right? And so it's sort of the, those ideas being transplanted to the internet, which is kind of what the, all of social networking has been doing for the last, you know, 30 years. There was that. And then there was this new thing called the web, uh, which had been, you know, developed in, in, in Switzerland at, at CERN. But it, it, that was like super early. Um, and yeah. there were like, I don't know, two or three websites at the time. And like the software was like, you know, just it was just very early. Um, and so if you uh, if you would read like an article about, you know, the Internet at that point, it would the article would be like, well, why would anybody want to use the Internet? And then a lot of the articles just ended there. But if they would go on to describe why you might use the internet, it's like, well, you can kind of do email. And then there's this FTP thing. You can download files. And then if you really want to get weird, you can like be on Gopher and wait. You can like go to Gopher and view menus. You can go on Waze and do searches, you know, kind of clay, clay to be molded. And so, so basically the, the original idea for Mosaic was, okay, how about the universal client, mm. right? How about, okay, because the problem is like all this stuff was like, these were all fragmented programs. They were hard to use. They were hard to install. Like most of this stuff was open source. It was like, you, you had to be pretty sophisticated to install it. By the way, it, yep. it, it seems obvious that like everybody's going to have this stuff. It seems obvious that kids are going to want to keep using this stuff once they graduate from college. Yep. It seems obvious that there's going to be, um, you know, software on servers and clients that's going to be used to share information. It's like, why wouldn't yep. you be able to have a link? Well, what, yep. number one, you don't have a text-based display because you don't want to be able to read stuff. Yep. Like most computer UIs up until that point were not text-based, right? They were, they were like, you know, they, they were like buttons and switches and levers, yep. right? Like old style nuclear control panels or something. And this, this software metaphor was like put everything in a document. So that was new, but we thought that was obvious because you like to be able to read things. Um, and then we thought, okay, hypertext is probably obvious. So there, there were a yeah. set of these things that we thought were obvious, but it's kind of like, okay, if they're so obvious, why haven't they happened? Yeah, and, and I remember like, uh, was it Vannevar Bush wrote something? Oh, right. about, he talked about this thing called the Memex, I think, yes. and it hypertext yeah. like in the 40s maybe yes. even, like a long time ago. So I started to do a lot of research. So luckily, Illinois has a big library. So I started to yeah. do research. And, and again, I was just stressed again, this is like pre-Google. Pre like, right. So this is like right. go to the card catalog right. Right, and try to figure out like... Can I swear on this podcast? Yeah, it's, to, it's okay with me. Okay, go to the card catalog if you're like, who the fuck wrote a book about this? Like, please, <laughs> God, could somebody have written a book about this? So basically the history was um, uh, there had – basically tracing back in time, there had been Doug Engelbart basically who, who basically developed a lot of these ideas and demonstrated a lot of them working in prototype form in the late 60s. And so yeah. there was like an intellectual heritage going back to Doug. Contemporaneous but even before that was Ted Nelson uh -huh. uh, who, who had sort of, invent, sort of invented the term hypertext. And so there was this idea of linking yep. that kind of existed. But like Ted is the guy who kind of picked up those ideas and kind of put them in, a, in the idea that a, that a computer should be able to do this. Um, and so there was kind of that heritage. And then there was, as you alluded to, there was this guy named Vannevar Bush who in 1945 wrote a paper called As We May Think, which is mm -hmm. one of those great old style, 1940 style titles uh, for papers. Um, uh, and it basically outlined a hypothetical system. This is 1945. So and Vannevar Bush is an important guy. He was FDR's science advisor during the development of the nuclear bomb. Um, and so he was like a very important guy. And he, he basically, he defined basically how the federal government would fund research for the next like basically 70 years. So this is like a very important guy, pillar of the establishment. So he wrote this document, which the Atlantic at the time published um, uh, back when they used to publish things like this. Today they'd publish a piece about how bad it is, yeah. but at the time they just like published a piece describing it. It basically outlined a system called Memex, uh -huh. which was, which is funny because 1945, so it's actually like pre-digital computer. Like digital computer was like a brand new idea. Yep. And he didn't, but like these ideas go way back. Yeah. 
you know, they're fairly obvious fairly quickly, right? Yep. Um, you know, because it's like, okay, that would be a good idea. It'd be a good idea to be able to store large amounts of information, retrieve it, share it, transmit it over long distances, search it. Yeah. There we were sitting in like 1992 being like, okay. Yep. And so basically it's like, are we crazy, right? Is the rest of the world crazy or is it just the right time? Yeah, and it's funny because it's one of, to me, you know, we both know this guy well, uh, Balaji uh, Srinivasan. One of the things I really like is his notion of this idea maze. I think Chris Dixon talks about it too, right? It's, to me, it's a way better way to come at the question because a lot of the, like all of it will happen someday, right? And and so the question is just, what's the right time for it to happen? And the idea maze is kind of this technique for understanding all the attempts that have occurred in the past and kind of understanding why those ideas got blocked and now do they get unblocked all of a sudden? How do you decide what to build first and which ideas are worth pursuing? So the, what we needed to have was a network effect. We needed to have a, a flywheel kick in. We did the browser. We also did the web server um, mm-hmm. at the same time. And, the, and that web server actually now is – Apache is the modern descendant um, yep. of that web server uh, over, over the last uh, 25, 30 years. But what we needed was, a, was kind of a ping pong effect, right, where yeah. – what you want is the flywheel where, like, more people reading with the browser, at least the more people wanting to publish with the server. The more people who publish with the server, the more incentive there is to read, and then you get the, the flywheel yep. effect. Um, and so what we needed for that – the advantage we had um, is we, you know, we basically had a hack. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things we say at our firm is if you're going to start a new net- network effects are like the best businesses in the world, but to get a network effect going, to get through the bootstrap phase, you need some hack. You need some strategy to kind of get you through that, that initial phase to the, yep. to, to the flywheel catching. And so our hack actually was, was actually, uh, was, it was the fact that, well, the internet, it was the, it was the, the, you know, sort of the NSF net, but the other hack actually was at the time, uh, internet news groups. Um, and so <laughs> we're actually the, ca- the carrier. Yep. Um, and so it just like, it turned out, and this is one of those kind of stroke of luck things. It just turned out there was like, there was latent demand there were enough people on this thing they weren't so it kind of goes back to the list they weren't online at the same time but they were online yep. um and so there were enough people online um where you could um you know there was a big incentive to be able to share even to the number of small number of people who were there um and then there was a big incentive to consume if there was anything at all to read yep um and, and then this was like the prototypical early adopter crowd where they just like to you know like to try new things and so there were a set of internet news groups that were kind of actively debating discussing you know all, all these kinds of topics um and so we were basically able to you know just kind of use that as the carrier wave one of the first blogs was a page I maintained. I wouldn't say it was the first one, not necessarily, but it was one of the first ones. So we had what was called the What's New page. Uh-huh. Um, and the What's New page, I would update it every, you, know, you didn't get into work and update it every morning um, or say when I got into work late in the afternoon, as the case yeah. might be. Probably started out as just everything that's there. No, it's literally every <laughs> new website, right? And it was literally like, I would just get emailed like, okay, you know, I launched a new website that's got the menu of my favorite Indian restaurant and, you know, Cardiff. Yep. Um, I've got a new website that has, you know, lyrics for the REM songs, right? Yep. It was just like random stuff like that. Yep. A lot of it was just people experimenting. Um, uh, and so it was literally, and, you know, it started out being like one a day. I was like, okay. And then it started being two a day and then it started being three a day. And then it went to five and 10, 20, 30 a day. And so and you could, you could just, you could kind of, there were two ways to see the flywheel. One was the incoming email. There were two incoming email boxes where you could see the flywheel kick in. One was entries for the what's new page because the what's new page was the main distribution method. Yep. It was the main way people were finding out about new web pages, right? Yep. Cause this is pre Google and everything else pre Yahoo. Um, but the yep. other, uh, the other email was customer support email for the browser, uh-huh. um, which was the thing, <laughs> the, thing the that ones almost, you didn't want to get the thing that almost killed me. Okay. Uh, was providing customer support for 
the entire internet. Um, <laughs> but, but that's another part of the part of the story later on. So so basically, so literally, what happened was so we this, this whole thing started taking off. The more and more people at at, our, at, at at Illinois started working on this. The team size started to expand. We became more ambitious, and then we went. We actually went for the second round of NSF National Science Foundation funding. This okay. is all. All this is happening. My, I mean, I was I was making minimum wage six dollars uh-huh. twenty five cents an hour, but that six dollars and twenty five cents an hour is being paid for by the National Science Foundation through a very okay. generous generous grant, and I, I'm grateful for that. At least you didn't get diluted. Uh, no, yeah. <laughs> it was hard. To, it's hard to dilute six dollars and twenty five cents an yeah. hour. In fairness, uh, they say keep your burn rate low. Yeah, yeah that, that's, that's that's a good way to do it. Mission accomplished. Um, so we actually went. We actually so literally what was happening was we were, we were just it, it was working, and so we had the we were the dog that caught the bus, you know, kind of thing where it's just like the like literally. What happened was, you know, the number of customer support emails per day was like, you know, 100 and then 200 and then 300 um, and then, you know, kind of up into the right. So we went to uh, NSF for grant number two to basically like, you know, basically make this thing real, like and, and kind of fully build it out. And, and of course, they denied the grant. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, we, we don't want to pay money to take all these support emails. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Which is literally and, and what I at the time I was like, well, that's kind of it's kind of, you know, they have a thing that's working and they're shutting off the money. Like, OK, that seems kind of dumb. And yeah. then I realized actually later on, I was like, oh, that was actually smart. Like, so specifically, like it's it's a research institute. It's NSF. It's research. It's intended right. to fund scientific research. And so clearly, yeah, customer support emails are like you know the 14th version of the Mac client. Like is not. So, yeah. So maybe that's a, a, an initial sign of product market fit is when the university says, you know what, we're we're done with you using our resources here. You've outgrown this university. Yeah, exactly. That happened kind of with Google too. I think yeah, later right, on. Right. Yeah. At, right. At some point, Google would have taken over the entire computer science department. Yeah. Right. Eating all the computers, and it was yeah, you get kicked out of the nest. Yeah. So yeah. so so yeah. they. Were kind of pushing you out yeah. of the nest. So or, I think. Yeah. I, so in retrospect, they did exactly the right thing, they, and they, they did exactly the right thing at exactly the right time. So did you decide, okay, I want to start a company, nope. or were you just like, well, that's a bummer. My grant money just went away. The, the second, okay, of the two. So, so then, so the, so like now you're just answering <laughs> customer support. No, emails. I was like, shit, I have to get a job. Okay. Like, <laughs> so what year were you in college? Now? I was graduating. Okay, so, so it, you're it, about to graduate. It coincided okay. with graduation. Okay. Okay. Uh, it coincided right around that time, and I was like, well, shit, I got to get a job. And so like, and there, you know, basically, there's not you know, very, there's very little actually in Champaign or. Okay, so now you got to get a job. Um, You're interviewing for jobs. Nope. No? Well, I had a slight advantage in my job search. Okay. uh, Which is I controlled... You controlled Mosaic. I controlled Mosaic. (laughs) And specifically, I controlled Mosaic, which is like I got to decide what people saw. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. And so I made sure they saw my resume. Okay. Nice. Yeah, yeah, and so I, I that's I, a growth hack. Yeah, yeah, it's a growth hack. It's a growth hack for your career. Uh, you you just go in the browser and you you add to the browser, uh, yeah, a button to see your resume. Um, and so I in fairness, I didn't put it on the homepage, which I could have done. Although that was a, a step too far, but I put it in the about page. Okay. Um, and so um, I got a, I got a set of offers. Uh, um, some on the East Coast, some on the West Coast. I almost joined the Java team. No kidding. Uh, in '94, yeah, '94 when I first came out here. But they offered when it was me, called Oak. It was called yeah. Oak at the time. Uh, it was Java pre-Java. Um, and uh, they, but they at the time it was a, it was a spin out from Sun, but it was only a partial spin out, and so they offered me comp- something called Phantom Stock Options. So, so uh, you know, but it's also funny because um, all of us were thinking about okay, there's going to be this network centric future, but most people were, were were framing it in yesterday's metaphor. They were talking about the digital superhighway, yeah, right. and so as a result, people thought the center of gravity is going to be like set top boxes and video game consoles and and. I don't know if others had this reaction, but when I first saw the Mosaic browser, 
it was instant, like instant ignition. This is how it's going to play out, right? I, I just immediately knew the way we've been thinking about this is wrong. It's not going to happen on these set top boxes. It may someday, yeah. but like the browser is going to happen right here, right now. Like there was just no doubt in my mind. Right? Well, no. So what I would nominate on the point that you made, I think the point you made is an important point that we 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 see all the time in our day job, and we see it every all the time today. Which is, it's like it's it, I would nominate two kind of dynamics to that. So um, uh, top down versus bottoms up. Yeah. Um, and one way versus two way. Yep. Right. And these are still battles that are playing out. I mean, this is, you know, the whole battle on cryptocurrency that's happening right now. Like you yep. see this all over the industry, all over the world, like this battle. And by the way, this is like many of the, many of the global politics are based on this battle right now. And so top down versus bottom up, like the view at that time, right. It was the information superhighway. It was going to be, um, you know, sort of, it was to be set top boxes, interactive television, but it was going to be provided by big companies. Yeah. Or should the government, or the government, yeah, should, they built the right. regular highway. Should they build a digital superhighway and yep. that'll help us against Japan, quote unquote. Exactly. Right? That was the big thing. <laughs> that that was the thought Japan process. Was the, yeah. that was gonna, the country yeah. that was going to take everything at the time. So, um, but it was going to be top down. And so the magazines and newspapers, 100% of the coverage, 100% of the commentary, like all of the media coverage, it was all around. It was going to be, right, the government, or it was going to be Time Warner in those days, or AT&T, or Verizon, or, um, yep. you know, the big cable company with a predecessor to Comcast. Um, and so it was going to be these giant media telecom companies, right? Yep. And then Microsoft and Oracle, giant software companies were trying to kind of wedge their way in to kind of be part of it. It was this top down thing. But like they would decide what it was going to be. And then, and then, and then that goes to the second thing, uh, which is one way versus two way, which was, it was going to be a, it was going to be a one, what primarily video, but like a one way push. Mm-hmm. Right. And so this was, this is why the whole metaphor at the top, 500 channels, like the whole thing was, Oh, today yep. you've got like 14 TV channels in the future. You'll have 500. That's the information. Center. And it'll be interactive TV. Well, it'll be interactive, interactive TV. You'll right? be able well, inter- to push a button but You'll have remote control. Yeah. You, you won't have a keyboard <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. or a mouse yeah. or anything unless you get into You'll just trouble. have a button that has a slice of pizza on it. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Like, we right. really had right. those. Or like, you know, American, I- American Idol. I'll be like American Idol. It'll just be like, oh, you can vote for the person who's, you know, singing the best or something like that. Yeah. Was, but the idea, the idea that an individual user was going to be contributing into this environment, the, yeah. the, the idea that an individual user would be publishing a video, right, or making a post or anything like that was just like setting up a website. There was just, there was no incorporation of that kind of two-way idea at all. Um, And so I think what put the whammy on people was if you were, if you came from the established power structure, if you came from the big companies or the press that was used to covering the big companies, it obviously had to be top down in one way. Yeah. Right. And by the way, the press, the press was one way at that time. Yeah. I and mean, this, this was yeah. before the audience could talk back. And so if you were at Time Magazine or NBC News or the New York Times, yeah. like you were used to. You controlled the conversation. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And like maybe you publish the occasional letter to the editor, but like you constrain that shit. Like you don't let people get carried away. Yeah. And that's, you know, one forty eighth of the space on, you know, one page of the paper. Um, and so so there was that. And so the, all the people who thought that they were in a position to decide had this had that view. But then all the regular people, right, or at least especially, the, let's just say, the nerds, um, including ourselves, um, the regular people, the, the people who were just like, look, I just want to be able to do things. Yeah. Right. And I want, by the way, do things. I want to be able to consume, but I also want to create and I want to contribute and I want yep. to build. Yeah. And the, the thing that I've just seen time and again, it, it's like you think about it when you were at the University of Illinois, you're hanging out with these supercomputers and you're building a browser. It's almost like the world was thinking in Cartesian coordinates and you were raised only thinking polar coordinates, right? And so like your mind was prepared to receive the insight because like you said, you were living in the future. You may not have even known it at the time that you were living in the future, but it just – and like so much of entrepreneurship I've found is it's like noticing. It's it's – you're living in the future and you notice something and you solve your own problem – And you're not necessarily trying to get rich at the time. You're just like, I'm working on cool stuff. And to do more cool stuff, I got to build this thing. 
So, so yeah. What I found with myself, or I found with the other founders who are like like what you're describing is, it's just obvious. Like it's 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 just like it's just like oh, obviously this should be this way. But then there's like cognitive dissonance, which is like if it's so obvious, why hasn't everybody figured this out yet? Yeah. Now most of the time when people come to that conclusion, they're just wrong. They're just wrong or insane. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> right? They, they have a vision, but it's like a hallucination <laughs> exactly, vision. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But every once in a while, you've got somebody who really does decode something. And, and I think to your point um, uh, uh, on kind of the preconditions for it, some of it is you get to see the you get to see the early kind of pings. I, I was talking about like they're pings from the future is the, other, yeah. the way they, like you, you can see these things actually running today. Um, and so you get, you get in a position where you can see something like that. So that's part of it. But the other thing that happens is just like you get to operate. It's the people who get to operate with the new assumptions. Right. Right. Um, yeah. And like when right. when you're your age starting Netscape, you don't have to translate. Right. Like right. people who lived in cartoons coordinates, they have to translate to go to polar, right? right? And so people who lived in the world of tops down, one-way, digital superhighway, interactive TV, yeah. they had to like, they had to translate that to what you were already doing, but to you, it's just obvious, right? It's yeah. like there, there, there wasn't anything for you to unlearn. Yeah. And then on top of that, I, you know, I had no power, right? And so like, <laughs> I, you know, I was not the CEO of AT&T. Like I couldn't, you know, I, I couldn't do any of the stuff that all these fancy people could do. I didn't have any, le- like that level of control. And so like anything yeah. that I was going to do was going to have to be bottoms up. Yeah. It was going to have to be two way, like, uh-huh. you know, kind of by def, if it wasn't two way, I'd be blocked out. So then speaking of powerful people, how did you find Jim Clark or how did you guys connect? And, and this is where I got, I got really lucky. So, so Jim Clark, kind of quick recap, Jim, Jim Clark at that time, Jim Clark had been the founder and original CEO of Silicon Graphics, which was at the time, you know, the company, as you said, you were there. It was the, the company at the time is probably most analogous today to, I don't know, some combination of, I don't know, Google and... I mean, it was like it was the company. It yeah. was it was the company that all the smart. It was like if you were a smart person in the computer industry, it was the company you you either worked for or wanted to work for. Yeah. Um. It was like the the brain center of, of the industry. Um. And this was when they 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 drove really drove computer graphics to be what they are today. Yeah. A total G whiz company, right? Yeah. Best graphics engineers in the yeah. world. Best networking engineers in the world because you have to push the pixels over network. I mean, it was just an incredible place to be. Fortunately for me, Jim had a problem. Um, and the problem was Jim had grown very dissatisfied with the state of affairs at Silicon Graphics at yep. the time. He got frustrated by a number of things. Um, he left uh, the company. He decided to start his second company. Um, but he had a very specific problem, um, which was that he had a non-solicit um, at SGI. Mm-hmm. So he had spent the previous 15 years hiring all the smartest people he knew in the world into SGI, and now he couldn't take them with him. Yep. Um, and so he literally had like a, he had a, what's that called? A warm meat problem. <laughs> as, in, <laughs> as in he didn't have any any bodies um to uh to work on to 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 work with them and so he literally went out to um a whole bunch of people in the industry who he knew um you know who weren't at sgi and he talked to them about maybe you know you want to start something uh or work on something and then um he he met me through a friend a mutual a guy actually a guy he worked with sgi who i didn't know but who knew about me um he was actually one of the one of the guys at sgi who actually was responsible for all the demos yeah they were a famous demo company oh yeah that's how we sold our computers yeah and so the guy who ran the i think it was designed the demos or built the demos for like the for the briefing center, um, uh, um, you know, basically was like up on all the leading edge stuff because yep. he was the demo guy. And so um, he basically knew about all this stuff. And so he, he I apparently happened to mention to Jim that like, A, that I existed and that B, B, B that I had just recently moved out here. Yep. Um, and so like I get a random call from Jim Clark like one afternoon being like, Okay, hey, and did you know who he was? Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah okay. no, it's like literally, it's like, you know, Steve Jobs calls you or, you know. Yeah, you're you know, like, this is Larry Page shit. calls yeah. you. Yeah. You know, hey, you know, this is Larry Page. Would you like to talk about starting a new company? You know, you're like, oh, okay. <laughs> Okay. You think? <laughs> yeah, all right. You know, gee, I don't know. Let me check my calendar, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> so I'm like, yeah, you know, basically, yeah, you know, sure, name the time and place. 
And so did you guys get on pretty well in the early days? Yeah, so a couple of things happened. So one is to my enormous shock, the other people he were talking to, he the other people he was talking to were too risk averse and they didn't and and I should also this was during a very sort of down period in Silicon Valley. Yeah. This was not an exciting time. Yep. Uh, this was like 93, 94. So there, there had been a really big recession and a lot of companies had failed. And so there were a lot of people who just like wanted a job. Yep. Um, but he did not get as nearly positive response as I would have imagined yeah. uh, from a lot of people who had like actual, you know, had, had, had careers, let's say. Um, and so through process of, of elimination, in part, I think it came down to me. Um, and then um, and then he and I started brainstorming. Um, and we actually, well, and then, yeah, and then we started we started working together on, on plans. So, so, so he's, he wasn't saying, I want Mark Andreessen because he invented the Mosaic browser. It's like, I can't get any of these killer SGI engineers. He's maybe another new smart guy that I can get and not get sued. Yeah, I think, <laughs> that's, I think, I awesome. think that's part of it. And I think it's, he's, you know, probably just channeling Jim. He probably, you know, at the very least, he knows how to build something new. Yeah. You know, which not everybody does. And so yeah. at least he's done it once before. But the reason why the Netscape idea was not obvious is because even after all of that, it still wasn't obvious that the internet would be a business, yeah. right? And part of that was it wasn't a business. Like nobody right. had made it into a business. Yeah. And so there was just, it was just this thing, which is, it goes to the top down, bottom up thing, which is just like, even after all that, and I saw the adoption cycle and the whole thing, and I stayed on all the mailing lists and I saw everything. It was just like, okay, like, I don't know, like, what are we going to, like, this is all open source. Like, you know, there's no commercial transactions on the internet. It had been illegal to do commercial transactions on the internet until the, 1993. Yeah. And this is only the spring of 1994. So it's, there was no e-commerce. There yeah. was no Amazon. There was none of that stuff. Yep. There was literally nothing to buy. There was no yeah. money. There was no nothing. Right. Yeah. And so it was just like, okay, it, there was not an obvious business to be it, built. And I remember for, couple of years, right? Upside Magazine at the time and things like that would say, you know, when's the internet going to have a business model, yeah, right. right? For yeah. about two years, right. people right. said, nobody's going to have a business model. Yeah, this is yeah. absurd. Everybody knows this. Even Yahoo, people said, well, great, but no business model. Yeah, yeah. of course. Yeah. And Google had no business model, like all yeah. these things. Yeah. yeah. None of these things have business models, right? Exactly. So, um, so basically, so, so, and then, and then Jim had been enmeshed, you know, Silicon Graphics had gotten enmeshed, um, in, um, two areas, um, that were, goes back to the conversation we're having with interactive TV. So, um, they were actually the provider of the technology for the Time Warner interactive TV project, which was like the most viable, it was the most actually developed version of the top-down information superhighway thing yeah, at the time yeah, in yeah. Orlando, Florida. This was written up in all the magazines and newspapers at the time. Um, it was a really cool, like, system that's kind of analogous to what you have today on a modern, you know, whatever, Comcast or DirecTV set-top box or something, or like Netflix kind of experience um, in 1994. It was impressive. It was just, it was like the capital cost per house was like, I don't know, $60,000. Yeah, it was crazy. We had some of our high-end gear, right, yep. power those boxes. It was not. So there was no, so we basically set out, plan number one was to build the software layer for interactive TV. And then uh -huh. we basically realized, oh, shit, there's not going to be actually any interactive TV. Like the economics actually don't work. Yep. Um, and then um, the other decision was uh, SGI was building the graphics chip for the new Nintendo, the yep. time the Nintendo yep. 64. The first uh, game console with 3D graphics, um, and um, so the idea basically was to build what today you call like Xbox Live or PlayStation Live to build basically the network yep. for Nintendo 64. The problem was Nintendo 64 was not going to ship for another two years. So literally, we got to the point where we were like, okay, those two plans don't work. And then it was literally like, are we going to like, what are we going to do? Process of elimination. Okay, so if top-down interactive TV isn't going to work and interactive gaming at that point wasn't going to work, then what's left? Yeah, what's left is the internet, uh -huh. right? And so it's like, okay, process of elimination. This thing that nobody's taking seriously. 
that nobody thinks can be a business, that breaks all the rules, that's bottoms up, that's organic. By the way, messy and hackers and crime. And, and you like, probably don't even think it's a business yet. No. Yeah. yeah. Well, now I, I have no actual business experience at that point. So <laughs> I have no basis to evaluate anything in business. But however, it, it seemed like a stretch. But like, <laughs> if it's the only thing, yeah. then it's going to win. Right. Because the only thing is the thing. Is the thing. Like, <laughs> right. And so it was weird because Jim was like, oh, that makes total sense. And what, what Jim actually realized, I think, to his credit was he he was so he was so SGI was so powerful at that point that he was able he was he was in that he was in that top down world and he yeah. and so he I, I think he would say like he was so fully in it and of it that he thought that that was how the world was going to work and he was doing his best to make it work that way when mm-hmm. he was SGI but then he's got such amazing sort of mental flexibility which is yeah, extraordinarily rare to have somebody who's this flexible in their thought process where he was just like when he got into this new context he was kind of just shedding assumptions he was able to replant himself into a true startup context yeah. and able to shed all those assumptions and say okay from a standing start what would you do and come to a completely different set of conclusions yeah so right. then, so then you decide to start this thing, right? And uh, you raise you raise money from well, he he seed funds it at first. He's probably already been seed funding just your little vision quest. No, no, no. Okay, <laughs> so you're just on this vision quest. You you by process of elimination. Nights and weekends. It's like okay, we're doing this. Yeah. Uh, what you then you just go raise money from John Dork, Kleiner Perkins, or say so we ran about six okay. months with Jim, we ran about six months with Jim's money, and then he's uh-huh. like, you know, I'm I'm rich, but I'm not that rich. Uh-huh. Um, and so um, he uh, was like, we, we're time to go raise money. So Jim zeroed in on Kleiner Perkins because KP had actually backed um, Sun, yeah, which was SGI's big competitor, um, and he had always really re- he told me he'd always really respected how. He had, Sun, both companies ended up being very successful, but Sun had a much faster takeoff rate out of the gate. Yeah. Um, and then um, he had always respected how John went about being a board member at Sun. Okay, so you 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 raised some money for Netscape. Uh, not sure if it's a business yet, but hey, let's let's go for it. And, and it, this must be around the time when. Um, Mosaic is starting to see even bigger lift, right? Because yeah, yeah. I because I seem to remember like the summer of the summer of '94, yeah. it was starting to yeah. really become a thing. So it was just it was snowball. It was a snowball rolling down the hill, picking up speed. Um, yeah, and it was starting to mainstream, and so you were starting to be able to you're starting to get the first signs of consumers actually coming on the thing, like yeah. just normal people. Okay, which is like a big a big deal at the time. You're starting to have companies starting to start you know launch websites. So it was around that time. I think it was around that time that AT and T ran the first internet ad. Yep. Um, on on at the time, and because uh, Wired had created a website and they ran the first internet ad. On the first, the reason we have all these banner ads is because the first ad was a banner ad for AT and T on the Wired.com. When did you switch from Mosaic to Netscape? Mosaic had been the name yeah. of the had been the name of the um, had been the Mosaic had been the name of the project at at, at, yeah. at, at Illinois. Um, we we didn't bring any of the code with us. Um, it was co- co- the code was open source, but copyright University of Illinois. Um, so we decided, and we needed to rewrite it anyway because we needed a bunch of stuff in the code, like security that we didn't have. Um, yep. So we wanted to do a, we wanted to do a clean a clean rewrite with what we knew what we knew now. Um, but we did figure like it's it's the name of the research project. I knew Sun. The name Sun was actually named after this, the research project at Stanford. That spawned Sun was actually called the Sun Research Project. Yeah, Stanford first. University Network. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So it's like it's just it's it's not a it's not a, it's just like a, it's like the name of the research project. It's like a it's like a just a it's a free thing. Yeah. So it's just obviously we'll just call this thing Mosaic Communications. We'll figure out the product name later. Yeah. Um, and um, and then University, University of Illinois then did a very um, sort of clever thing I had not seen before, and I don't think I've seen since, which is they didn't sue us. Instead, they went. They sent lawyers to all of our potential customers and told them they were going to sue us. Oh! Um, and so they freezed us in our tracks. Um, they basically blocked our ability to do business because um, then they alleged basically a, a broad range of trademark and copyright violations. The copyright violations weren't true because we didn't take any of the code. 
Um, but they threatened to sue us for that. And then we had this problem, which is we had we had this name, which there's some ambiguity as to whether there was a trademark on it or not. But like yep. they, they, you know, there, there there did seem to be a, a clear hard to explain there. away. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Just like inconvenient fact, yeah. as they say. Um, and so we actually ended up suing them um, for, I believe it's what is it, restraint of trade and purchase. So, so are you feeling kind of pissed at them? Yes. right about now, like yes. thermonuclear right about super now? pissed. Yeah. yeah, right about yeah. now, like today, yeah. sitting here. Oh, yeah, even very, now, very much so. Yes, <laughs> yes, I'm still extremely angry. Thank you for thank you thank you for asking. How does um, that make you feel, Mark? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we'll pick that up in part two, the psychotherapy uh, section of the. Uh, of the thing, so we actually ended up suing them. We actually ended up suing them, and and, uh, and then we negotiated a settlement. Okay, and we pay, we paid them, and as part of the settlement, we changed the name. Okay, um, yeah, and that was the that so, was the, so, uh, and that was the last penny. So you changed it to net. <laughs> you changed the name to Netscape. So then, so you do the Netscape browser. Did it just immediately blow up? I mean, it was just everybody knew who you were. Everybody knew yeah. that you were the voice of browsers. It just. So like what? So that what was a super fat. Well, it was it was this thing of it, it was basically a continuation of the mosaic phenomenon, and, yeah. and we were the clear inheritors of that because we had built it, and so it was just one of these things where like it it, it was a cold start as a company, yeah. But it was building directly on the momentum from the previous thing, and then we, we knew what else do we knew? We knew Illinois was not going to continue the mosaic project because we knew they didn't. Yeah, they, they, they didn't want to do it. Yeah. Right, exactly. And so we 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 kind of knew that it had to be picked up. And then look, the other thing was like there were just a set of things that you just you needed. Like it was time. It was time to be able to like do financial transactions, right? So it was time. Yeah. Like, you need a secure needed encryption, uh, which the original browser didn't have. Um, it's, it's so then, so so was there any th- sort of palpable moment where you're just like, holy crap, this is blowing up, or had it kind of already blown up even before Netscape really got started? Like, was there a, was there any moment where you're inside of Netscape and you're just like, holy shit? Well, the big moment was the night of the original release of the browser, where you know you we we hooked up one of the computers to the to the stereo system and uh-huh. had the, the Canon yep. fire sound effect for every time somebody downloaded it, uh-huh. and the Canon started to go off. Okay. Before long, the Canon was going off continuously. Right. So, <laughs> like how like how long? How? Oh, that was like in a couple. That was a few hours. Okay. But I mean, that was that. But again, it was feeding on this moment. It was just like everybody. Yeah, we, yeah, yeah. We, we knew everybody who was using Mosaic. We knew how to get to them. We just said, "Hey, there's this new thing." Yeah, it, it was much better. I mean, it was built correctly. Yeah, it was our second our second implementation. It's, um, it's and so, so we just we knew it was better. Okay, um, and so yeah. now it's probably what the the uh, this is probably late ninety four. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Okay, and so and and if I remember, you went public like in early ninety five. Uh, and yeah, with no August, profits. August. Did you have any revenue yet? Yeah, yeah. So we had revenue. We doubled revenue every quarter that year. So the okay. revenue that year was by quarter was five million, ten million, twenty million, and forty million. Uh-huh. Um, and we went cash flow positive, like I think right around the time we were we went public. And I think we were, if I remember correctly, we were cash flow positive continuously. Okay. All the way to when we sold the company. And so one of the one of the legends that one of the legends myths that built up around the company is that it was this early precursor for these unprofitable companies. Really? Um, huh. and actually we, we actually prided ourselves at the time of like delivering cash flow. So, so basically through the whole thing. So was the decision to go public pretty obvious then at the time? It was just like your revenues are exploding. People want the product. It was obvious to Jim. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So, so yeah. So like, what's it like? So you're just barely out of college and all this stuff's happening around you. Like what, what's that like? Uh, you know, it was just, I mean, it was literally, we were so heads down. Um, it was just like, you know, go work somewhere. It was Uh one of those things. There was so much to do. 
Yeah. There was so much to do. I mean, it's like it's building a company, which is incredibly hard. But on the top of the, on top of that, like the whole thing started to work, and then there's just like you have like a thousand ideas. Yeah. Right. And then it's just well, and a few more customer support calls. Yeah, and now. all that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. All this, all this other infrastructure to build, and and you know, and then look, I'm learning business. I'm learning like basically all the business on the fly, right? Uh huh. I'm basically learning like you know, I don't know whatever is in an MBA plus another ten years of operating experience. Yep. You know, in like as, as as fast as I possibly can, right? So I'm basically either like I'm either at work or I'm like at home reading business books. Like those were the only two things that I did. It it would so. So you, now you know about the theories of product market fit and all that stuff. Like, how do you reconcile what happened at Netscape with the notion of product market fit? Like, yeah, so how do you reconcile? Because it just seems like one of these rare cases where it's just like lightning just struck and it was like huge right away. I think for B2B, there's like there are deterministic ways to try to get to product market fit. For yep. consumer stuff, it's less clear to me even still. Yeah. It, it, we actually use the term lightning strike. Like yeah. it, it may just be. Well, here's one of the questions is like there are these companies, there are quite a few companies that have had lightning strike consumer hits in the last 20 years. And that, that led to the creation of like very interesting companies. And there's probably, I don't know, in the, in the US alone, 50 or 100 or 150 yeah. of those, right? Yeah. How many of those, how many of those ever had another one? Yeah. Very in, few. In the same very company. Few. Yeah. That they didn't have to go acquire from outside. Yeah. And I think it's Apple, maybe zero. Now people talk about the internet as being easy for hackers to get to, fundamentally insecure as an architecture, or, or needs to be rethought in some ways. Knowing what you know now, are there things that you think you could have done, or that Netscape could have done, that w- that may have made it play out a little differently? Yeah. So there's three big things. There's three big things that we should have done. <laughs> um, would have made a big difference early on. And one of them we well, well there's one thing we did that mattered a lot. I'll talk about that. There's one thing we tried to do and couldn't get there, which remains a hot topic today. And there's a third thing that didn't even occur to us, which I'm, I kicked myself we didn't think about this, but I'll explain why we didn't think about it. So the thing that we did do is we got encryption. Yep. In there. That's and, huge. And and that was a fight then. By the way, it looks like it's going to be a fight again now. Um, the various Western governments are once again pushing to try to restrict the use of strong encryption. Like we, and for pe- people who don't know the history of that, like we fought that battle. And Netscape was Netscape Navigator was the first commercial implementation of encryption that became widely used. Yeah. There had been other products before, but we were the first one that millions of people used. And so we, we, we at the, at the time we, we we developed Netscape to have strong encryption. And the browser meant that the browser was classified under U.S. federal law with criminal penalties as ammunition. Yeah. It was classified in the same export control category as Tomahawk missiles. Um, <laughs> and so we were not allowed to export the version with strong encryption. We could sell it in the U.S. We couldn't export it. We had to deliberately ex- we had to export a weakened version. Wow. So imagine yeah. our, sales, our sales pitch to a user in, you know, France or Australia or something is like, hey, congratulations. You get the one that's easy to crack. Okay. Yeah. You know. <laughs> the U.S. government can I, have their way I, with it. I yeah. hope you like it. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. NSA has, has, it, has it pre-wired. Effectively, because they, they could just crack it easily. Um, and so um, we fought really hard in the 90s. So, so encryption wars at the time. And, and ultimately, uh, the, the government actually backed down. And as of like, was it 97 or whatever, they actually changed policy. Yep. And they actually legalized, eventually legalized strong encryption uh, globally for, for U.S. companies to be able to build products globally. Um, that battle keeps getting refought. And it has come, and probably in my view, it's come back to life. I think it's just an, it's just an absurd thing to be. It's just like, do you want secure systems or not? Like, right. could somebody please decide? Right. Do you want secure? If you don't want secure systems, fine. I guess we'll stop trying to build them. I guess they'll get built, you know, in other countries, and you know, the U.S. tech industry will not be relevant anymore. So that's an option. Yeah. But like, if you want us, if you want American companies to win at tech, like maybe we should be able to build secure systems. And if you want us to be able to protect and defend the United States against cyber terrorism and criminals and all this stuff, you know, presumably that's a good idea. But anyway. We got that one in there. Um, the one that we tried to do was integrated financial transactions. Mm. Um, so payments, obviously, was something yeah. that we, we would, you, you would want. Um, and we tried to build that in. Um, we tried hard there. 
The problem there is, you know, obviously money, payments, transactions have been historically highly regulated. Right. And so we made arguably the mistake in that case of asking for permission, mm-hmm. um, which is we went to the banks and the credit card companies. You should have let the pirates go crazy. Probably. The problem was we didn't have the technology yet. We didn't have Bitcoin. We didn't have cryptocurrency. Yeah. This was pre-cryptocurrency. Yeah. And so had we let the pirates go crazy, we, we would have had to just implement a system that just let you transfer money with like no, yeah. no permission. Yeah. And probably we would have gotten nuked for that. Yeah. You that know. would have even been worse than the encryption. Yeah, debacle. like PayPal yeah. figured out a way to bootstrap a system, you know, a few years later, but, you know, they almost died. Like, yeah. they came close to dying. Yeah. Uh, they almost got regulated out of, out of existence. They just barely got through it. Um, and so that 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 was the big that was the big one that, like, we should have had and we missed. But we did try. Um, and, and that's one of the reasons why I'm so strong now, so positive on cryptocurrency and blockchain and Bitcoin and Ethereum and all these things today. It's just, like, internet-scale money and trust needs to happen. Yeah. It was a huge problem that we didn't have it early. Had, had we had internet-scale money and trust wired in early, like, the internet economy today would not be based on advertising, yep. right? It would not be based on any of the privacy stuff that people are worried about today. It would be based on money and trust, yep. and it would be a fundamentally better, stronger system. Um, and so, and, and so, we, like with our view is like with cryptocurrency, we have a chance to go back and kind of redo that. Yeah. Now, of course, they're trying to in various forms keep that from happening as well. Yeah. They, um, but um, but we're we're going to try. Um, and then the one that I wish we had had, but we just, it didn't even occur to us as real names. Okay. Real identities. Oh, right? interesting. Right? Which is okay. the other part of have, of trust, right? Which is like, okay, who are you dealing with? Yep. Right. Um, and so all the issues, you know, spam and fraud and like all these issues, abuse and harassment, all that stuff. Like it's basically, you can't solve any of that stuff if you don't have real names. Hmm. Um, and so, I mean, it's, it's hard enough to solve those problems when you have real names. Yeah. It's impossible to do it if you don't have real names, I think. Okay. Well, Good. thanks, Mark. Good. Thank that you, was Mike. great talking to you. Thanks for listening to Starting Greatness. You can follow me on Twitter at M2JR, and please shoot me an email with any comments or questions to greatness at floodgate.com. I hope you'll subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, I'd be grateful if you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Never let go of your inner power to do great things in whatever matters to you. And until we meet again, remember, greatness is a decision.